Before I get too deep onto some of the new topics, I want to cover my tracks a little bit on some of the topics I already covered. One was labetalol. And I believe in the last lecture I was saying that the beta blocker ratio to alpha blocker ratio in intravenous labetalol is 7 to 1. So basically, intravenous labetalol pretty much is a beta blocker with a little bit of alpha blocking activity. What I didn't point out at that time is that oral labetalol is actually a bit of a different drug than intravenous labetalol. So oral labetalol, the beta blocker to alpha blocking ratio is 3 to 1. So oral labetalol is really more of a combination drug with still a higher degree of beta blockade to alpha blocking, but not nearly as much of a degree as intravenous labetalol that is 7 to 1 ratio. The other thing that I wanted to remember to mention is when I was talking about the etiologies of very high blood pressures, I said one of the main etiologies, the number one reason, is non-compliance with blood pressure lowering medication. So we've all met the patient who has a superpower of making cigarettes disappear but can't afford the $4 a month blood pressure lowering medication that's generic. And then I went into a whole bunch of other etiologies of very high blood pressures, but one I forgot to mention and I think is very important, particularly for people who take care of people in hospital settings and intensive care units and any hospital floor for that matter, is hospital fluid overload, iatrogenic fluid overload. So I don't want to blame just patients for high blood pressure. A lot of times it can be because we give too much IV fluid. Liters and liters of salty fluid will cause the systolic and diastolic pressure to go up, and the way to treat that form of hypertension from fluid overload is fluid removal. Often, treating volume overload with other antihypertensives will yield very unsatisfying results. The last thing I want to cover my tracks a little bit on is this term hypertensive urgency because I know it does drive some of you crazy. So Hannibal Lecter would tell you if people make you sick, you should cook them longer and no doubt some feel that way about me. There have been many physicians and clinicians who are sick of the term hypertensive urgency and would like to see it go away and not be used in podcasts or the guidelines or any medical literature for that matter because they don't think that hypertensive urgency is rightly named because it's not a true urgency. So it's probably worth addressing that just a little. First of all, I think it's going to be a while before we get to a place where that term isn't used at all. But also, like I said, I think in the first episode, it is very challenging to know if someone is truly not having subtle acute adverse effects from very high blood pressure. And remember I said that normotensive patients who suddenly have a very high blood pressure are more prone to adverse events from a rapid rise in blood pressure. I kind of think about the same way I think about type 1 diabetics. They tend to be able to handle lower glucose levels a little bit better than the rest of us because their body adapts. I know that's not always the case, but it does seem like if most of us got blood sugars in the 50s, we tend to feel that where it does seem like people have had type 1 diabetes for a long time since they've had so many episodes of that may not even feel differently. I know I can't say that as a blanket statement, meaning there's some type 1 diabetics who certainly will feel hypoglycemia, but you get what I'm saying. And 
Also, some of you who listened to my lectures discussing something like heavy squats, for instance, know that blood pressure can rise very fast in that type of situation, put unique stresses on the heart and the vascular system. But to be fair, that's not a sustained rise in high blood pressure. Although even in those situations, sometimes you do see some of these power lifters get severe epitaxis, very significant nosebleeds, and on occasion you hear stories about burst aneurysms and things like that. But overall, most weightlifters and powerlifters, even when it's heavy weight, were tolerating very high, brief blood pressure elevations. And so if we're doing 45, 60 seconds of squats and getting our systolics above 220, it doesn't seem to affect the kidneys or cause a lot of problems as far as we know. But I don't think we can correlate that with someone who is normally normotensive and then gets a sustained very high blood pressure. I do think that can put a lot of stress on a lot of organs. And so my point being, without rehashing the first episode too much, is that sometimes it may be a bit more urgent than we realize. And therefore, while hypertensive urgency probably isn't the best name for it, it probably isn't the worst name thing in medicine either. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe essential hypertension is one of the worst things named in medicine. But even then, we were talking about too rapid of a decline in blood pressure can be harmful because it causes ischemia. It can cause coronary steel ischemia. It can cause cerebral ischemia. And that is the theoretical reasoning. And I also gave some evidence for that that wasn't just theory, where there have been known situations where lowering blood pressure too quickly can cause a lot of problems. So I just wanted to clarify some of those past issues, and now we can move on to new things. And maybe the best new thing to discuss is actually a really old thing, which is hydralazine, because there is a lot of hydralazine haters out there. It's a drug that was approved by the FDA back in 1953. To put that in perspective, 1953 was the year of the first issue of Playboy magazine, and it featured a nude model named Marilyn Monroe. It was the year that Aldous Huxley first dropped mescaline, which are like the only two things that really happened that year. Well, I mean, Jonas Salk discovered the polio vaccine in 1953, and Watson and Crick discovered DNA in 1953, but I'm trying to stick to the things that everybody would actually care about now. Because be honest, if you had to wager $10, even on a guy right now getting his PhD in modern genetics at an Ivy League today, and you asked him, do you want to see a rarely seen picture of Watson and Crick or Marilyn Monroe nude? you know where the smart money is. And so, oh yeah, hydralazine. That's what we're talking about here. These things happen to me all the time, by the way. Even today when I said to my wife, to make a long story short, she just stopped me right there and said, just so you know, whenever you say that, it is already too late. And I know she's right. But anyway, hydralazine. So a lot of haters out there, and I think I can agree with them on one thing. I don't think it is a great first line for hypertensive emergencies. I don't use it in hypertensive emergency, but when you're not in an emergency, if you're just buying some time with an oral dose of hydralazine or an IV dose if someone is MPO, then I would be lying if I said I never use it. Though I don't use it 
if the heart rate is even borderline high. And then you're gonna hear a lot of people who lecture about this topic who say they feel hydralazine is very unpredictable and that sometimes it doesn't work and other times it drops blood pressure too much. And to be fair, I'm not sure that I personally feel that any blood pressure medicine has been totally predictable for me in all cases. There are some drips that I find pretty predictable and some drips I don't, so we'll get to some of that. But I think anybody that pays attention that is using hydralazine has seen significant tachycardia with hydralazine. And the reason I say pay attention is because now in the shift work mindset and sometimes where you're just working one shift at night or two days in the hospital and then gone and not really paying attention and you have 20 patients or 22 patients depending on where you're working. And my point is, is that sometimes we don't have that follow-up where we're paying attention to what happened. Meaning if you get a call from a nurse and you order an IV or oral hydralazine, you may never look at that chart again, particularly if it isn't a patient you're following on a regular basis. Or likewise, the day team may come in and if you didn't write a note, that you gave a PRN dose of hydralazine, you should, but if you didn't, then they may not realize why all of a sudden at night their patient had some tachycardia at night. So when I do use hydralazine in somebody who has a very significantly elevated blood pressure and I just wanna use a one-time dose or a PRN dose to get it down, I tend to only use it in patients who have low heart rates like in the 60s, or particularly if they do have bradycardia in the 40s or 50s, Sometimes I feel like I'm getting two birds with one stone. And then, of course, I think everybody that's looked at the literature on it can agree that for African Americans with heart failure, it seems like a very reasonable drug to consider in combination with isosorbide dinitrate. Problem is, of course, that it's not a daily drug. So you have to dose it TID, which is why I think a lot of people don't use it because understandably the compliance with a TID drug in any population is not going to be very good. With high blood pressure in pregnancy, it's one of the reasonable options to consider, though I understand many have moved away from it as the first option in eclampsia and preeclampsia. And as I said, there are some that think it's heresy that anybody uses it ever, but I can't please anybody. I would argue that avoiding hydralazine in known coronary artery disease is very wise because of the baroreceptor reflex tachycardia. And for that reason, it would be a very poor option in aortic dissection, at least as a first choice in aortic dissection. As I said in the last lecture, you really probably want to start with a beta blocker because you want to bring down the heart rate as well. But if you already have a beta blocker on board and another vasodilator, and you're now on drug four or five, I mean, can I argue against hydralazine to be added? No. And I guess I should say, how does hydralazine work? It is a direct arterial vasodilator. And one of the concerns that some people have with hydralazine, in addition to the reflex tachycardia, is that sometimes there's a feeling that you could have coronary steel with hydralazine. Now, whether coronary steel really happens with hydralazine, I suppose it's certainly possible, but at a very minimum, you can develop a demand ischemia if you have coronary artery disease and now you cause a tachycardia. All right, man, where's the time going? I, this is going to take more than just this lecture to finish this off, unfortunately. I was hoping to finish off today, but a lot more facts to share at the risk of sharing facts, of course. 
And I hate to say it, but there is some risk with facts these days, particularly scientific facts, because there's a backlash these days as anti-intellectual populism has risen to the point where if your favorite charismatic politician that people worship says 2 plus 2 equals 5, you can get death threats for pointing out that it isn't true. Who would have guessed that belief in science would be one of the top things to divide this country? And if there is a silver lining to this pandemic, it's when I wear my mask that nobody can see me use curse words. Okay, so what should be the last thing to cover today? Why don't we do clavidipine? Because that is a drug that I think a lot of people still have a little struggle understanding. So clavidipine is a third generation dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Now, how do you remember that it's a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker? Well, think of amlodipine. Clavidipine shares the same ending. But unlike oral amlodipine, clavidipine has a very rapid onset, usually in less than four minutes, and then when you turn it off, it's usually done and out of your system within about 15 minutes. While not necessarily the best choice, it's not a bad first choice in using for certain conditions like intracerebral hemorrhage, or if you do need to use a blood pressure-lowering medication for, let's say, cerebral ischemia before you give TPA. A lot of people don't use it because of cost concerns as one of the more newer drugs and that it's not really proven to be better than a lot of the other choices out there. But if you do use it, there's two things to know about this drip that is different than other antihypertensive drips. First of all, it's contraindicated in patients with an allergy to soy or eggs. So think about that. A lot of times you'll see things like food allergies in patients' allergy list, and you don't really think twice about it when you're prescribing drugs. In this one, it matters. And then the second thing is that it is a lipid emulsion, and it will increase triglyceride levels. And since we basically only use it in intensive care units outside of the ER or possibly in the OR, a lot of times in the ICU, patients are already receiving exogenous lipid supplementation, like things like TPN, right? So you have to take that into account because you don't want to get into a situation of severe hypertriglyceridemia, which as we know can cause things like pancreatitis and other issues. So those are some things to keep in mind that are very specific to this medication. Okay, well I think that's enough for today. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Gil Parat. I will catch you on the next round.